Running a business these days looks a whole lot differently than it used to. Whether it's a freelance consultancy firm that you're running from your spare bedroom or a brick and mortar location in the heart of downtown, the one thing that hasn't changed is the amount of blood, sweat, and tears you pour into keeping the lights on. Some people think managing money is easy. This is a podcast for the rest of us. Our goal is to introduce ideas, tell stories, and give you some tips to help improve your financial IQ. Welcome to The Safe Space, brought to you by U.S. Bank. Today's episode is all about managing your business. Hello, everyone. I'm Kelly Sutton. Welcome back to The Safe Space. We're going to be tackling all sorts of financial issues you encounter at different stages in your life. Today, we're going to look at what you can do to better manage running your own business, no matter how big or small it may be. Starting a business can be intimidating. It used to mean finding a building and paying rent, paying employees, and managing the seemingly never-ending laundry list of expenses and tasks. But running a business today can take on so many different iterations. The gig economy has created an entirely new army of small business owners that need just as much guidance and help as your more traditional brick-and-mortar establishments. There are a lot of factors to consider when managing your business. That being said, we have a jam-packed show with experts and special guests from across the spectrum. Today's guests include Nick Loper from Side Hustle Nation, our friend Josh Modell from Talkhouse is Back, He's going to talk to musician Jason Narducci about an unexpected side project. Cheddar News anchor Hope King will sit down with founder and CEO of GiveWith, Paul Palazzato. He's an experienced entrepreneur who's going to offer us some advice on how to start a new venture, from ideation to building your team. Artist Patrick Shearn will be joining me later on the pod. He creates large-scale art installations for music festivals in cities. Very cool. We're excited to learn how he runs his company. And lastly, money girl Laura Adams is back with a few business tips just for you. From starting a business to maintaining it, we'll learn a little bit of everything. Remember, we're creating a safe space to grow your financial IQ. Through these conversations, we want to inspire and help arm you with the knowledge to be a boss. Okay, let's get down to business. Our first guest is one I'm really excited to chat with. Nick Loper is the brains behind Side Hustle Nation. Nick used to grind away at the traditional 9 to 5, but finally decided to go out and do his own thing as an entrepreneur. And he's never looked back. Since going out on his own, he's dedicated himself to sharing all the lessons he's learned along the way. He's also a fierce proponent for becoming your own boss. Nick, thank you so much for joining us on Safe Space. You are the chief side hustler of Side Hustle Nation. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your journey, and Side Hustle Nation. Isn't that fun being your own business owner? You get to make up whatever title you want on your business cards. (laughs) Um, But like, I was the kid trying to sell baseball cards at the end of the driveway, trying to sell candy at summer camp. But what really bit me with the entrepreneurial bug was this uh, house painting internship in college. It was at once so crazy stressful and so crazy rewarding that I was just hooked. It was my first taste of working for profits and not wages. My first taste of really being in control of my own calendar and really of thinking like a CEO. And I think that's a really important mindset, perhaps now more than ever, to you know really say like, I'm in charge of my financial life. 
And even if you're working a day job, recognizing that you're already an entrepreneur, perhaps your your boss or your employer is just your biggest client. So I, I did take a corporate job after graduation, but like for many people, the thought of punching the clock for, for somebody else for the next 30 years was pretty terrifying. So my original side hustle, the one that let me quit that job after just three years, was a comparison shopping site for footwear. So it helped people find the best deal on their next pair of shoes and collected affiliate commissions from Zappos and Amazon and all these other online shoe stores when people ordered through the site. And it was while running that business and doing a little soul searching that Side Hustle Nation and the Side Hustle Show podcast were born. Like, what am I most excited talking about? What do I never get tired about talking about with friends and at parties? It definitely wasn't shoes, but it was this kind of empowering, lower risk brand of entrepreneurship. You just said soul searching and you're talking about shoes. I don't know if you meant to say that, but you did. And I love it because it sounded like a really good dad joke right there. You know, you talk about having that nine to five job and it definitely has its pros and its cons. Obviously, the side hustle empowered you. What was it about that that you saw there was more to it than just a side hustle at that point? Most people get into side hustling for the financial aspect. I need to make more money. Or I want to make more money. That's super important. In a lot of ways, can say, okay, I have value outside of my day job. I'm worth more than what it says on my business card. But for me, it was about like taking uh, control over this. You know, you, you think of your income as fixed. Oh, this is this is my paycheck. I get it every couple of weeks. It's great. And that can be really addicting. In fact, that was kind of a funny comment in the Side Hustle Nation community the other week was like, what's holding you back from, you know, really taking the leap? And it's like, this steady paycheck is is addicting. It's hard Mm -hmm. to get out of. But taking control and then building the entrepreneurial skill set and the confidence. And like you said, the empowerment to say, okay, this is like, I have have worth to to the world beyond just what my boss wants to pay me. You know, a lot of people are listening to this and maybe they already have this great idea for a business. Maybe they don't. What are some ways that you can kind of dip your toe into that side hustle without just completely quitting the nine to five and jumping in both feet? Well, that's the beauty of the side hustle. You probably have heard the definition of an entrepreneur as somebody who jumps off the cliff and uh, figures out how to build his parachute on the way down. Yeah. That stresses me out to no end. Like, <laughs> don't do that, please. So absolutely, this is the toe dip approach to building a business. So consider the three main business models that just about every company in the world um, is going to fall under. So those are selling a service, selling a product, or selling attention. So the attention economy is you know, what has made Google and Facebook into such you know, massive businesses, build a resource that is useful or helpful. And then all we can sell advertising is usually the business model in the attention business. But to sell a service, like to dip your toes into side hustling, this is probably the fastest way to get started because there's no overhead. You can take inventory of the skills you already have and go find somebody who needs help solving that problem or solve the problem that you have the skills to answer. And you could have a client by the end of today. So that's how a lot of people tend uh, tend to get started. So this is the house painting model that I talked about uh, earlier. You know, this was babysitting going back even earlier in my uh, entrepreneurial adventure. And more recently, that's been like book editing, virtual uh, assistant recruiting. My wife's side hustle is in wedding photography. So it's like work for clients, basically. You know, I could take the skills that I already have and do those on a freelance basis. And on the product side, this is the buy low, sell high business mm-hmm. model where this is Walmart, this is Amazon in its simpler days before it got into everything else under the sun. It was like, where can I source inventory cheaply and sell it at a profit? So to dip your toes, like this could be 
cleaning out your garage, cleaning out your closet. Like, what do I have that I don't use? Let me put that on eBay, Craigslist, OfferUp, LetGo. Just, hey, you get a taste for what sells, what moves, and that, that can be a good way to get started. The next level up, one of my favorite side hustle stories is the flea market flipper mm -hmm. out of uh, Orlando, Florida. He's, he makes a full-time living just buying and selling random stuff that he finds. And now, you know, because he's kind of built up a reputation for him, people come to him with deals. And he talked about flipping a prosthetic leg he found at the market <laughs> for 40 bucks, 50 bucks, turning it around on eBay the next day for $1,000. I was like... This is just nuts. But he's like, Nick, you know, the business isn't constrained by my ability to find deals. The business is constrained by my capital and storage space. So he's like, okay, I'm going to go get a warehouse. But it was just, it was fascinating some of the stuff that he found. Like people just didn't want anymore. They didn't want to deal with it. It was too big. They thought it was going to be too big or expensive to ship. And so he was like practicing this product business, this buy low, sell high business model, just on a local, on a local level. That's crazy. I mean, what a great story. Holy cow. Okay, so when people are starting this, is it really finding the need and filling that need? Or is it more of doing what you love? Because I feel like you could go either way. You see a void and you try to make something that will fill that void. Or, for example, you mentioned your wife being a wedding photographer on the side. I imagine that's something that she loved doing anyway. What are some of the ways that people really can set themselves up for success before they venture out on their own? Sure. So, the photography example definitely did start as a hobby and kind of took a little bit of you know, getting over this inertia, getting over this hurdle to say, now I want to start charging for this. Now, mm -hmm. like, will I find somebody to actually pay me money for this? And that was a big leap. And they've, you know, continued to raise their prices. She does it with a friend of hers and continue to raise their prices over, over the years. But if you think of a business as a problem solving machine, right? Like, why are people spending money usually to make a problem go away? And then on the attention side, you know, maybe that's for entertainment, like if I'm on ESPN or something. But the surprising thing is, and this is backed by uh, research by uh, Cal Newport and Daniel Pink, is that the, the passion more often comes from doing the work and pursuing mastery toward that work, like along the path, rather than starting something you're super passionate about, and then trying to turn that into a business, which that's really good news for people who, like me, maybe don't have something they'd consider like their undying passion or aren't sure which idea to pursue. Because the truth is, in the beginning, it doesn't really matter. And I'll give the example of, of hosting the podcast. When I started, I had no idea what I was doing, what I was getting into. So it definitely wasn't a passion or even a particular area of expertise, because like every expert starts as a total beginner, right? Mm -hmm. But through practice and through doing the work, it has become something that's really meaningful and really rewarding to me. And on the flip side, there was a, you know, I've heard from people recently, there was a guest recently who said, look, I, I tried to take my passion for music and I, I did turn it into a business, but it was miserable because now there's something that I love, this thing that I loved, it became work. Mm, and yeah. it was, it was really kind of detrimental to his enjoyment of that passion. You think of a business as a problem-solving machine. What problem can you go out into the world and solve? But consider the the why. Like, why do you want to do this? What is this going to afford you? Because a strong enough why can bear almost any how. And I think that's a Nietzsche quote. So I think of, of problems that you could solve and, and figure out why you want to go out and solve them and what that means both for your clients and for you personally. I love that. Okay, so find your why. What are some of the challenges that you find people run into? They, they've started this business, it's up and running, they've got a side hustle. 
And then they're branching out. What's one of the first big challenges that kind of smacks them in the face? I mean, for me and for a lot of the people I talk to, it's uh, prioritization and focus because mm-hmm. we're so used to having somebody else, having a boss tell us what to do. Okay, here's your next project. Here's what to work on. And on the entrepreneurial side, I've had you know to-do items sit on my list for months at a time only to come to the realization like it's never going to move until I take action on it. It's like mm-hmm. this realization that like, hey, you're you're in charge now. Like not, that's never going to get done unless you actually do it. So one thing that's been really helpful for me is working in four week like project sprints. So okay, saying, okay, this month, uh, here's my top priority. This is the goal that I'm going after. All those other shiny object projects can wait. And then each night I'm writing down my top three priorities for the next day. So I know exactly what to tackle and in what order to move things forward toward that, toward that four month sprint. And the other challenge that comes up aside from the prioritization and focus is like just wearing all the hats. Mm. When you're starting out, when you're a company of one, you're the CEO, you're the the bookkeeper, the marketing department, production operations, customer service, janitor. There's a certain rite of passage in going through that stage, which I think is, I think it's actually pretty important. But I recommend delegating uh, the work that you don't like doing or that somebody else would be better at as soon as the revenue justifies it. I like that. That's always smart. You got to know where your limits are. So business owners hear all the time about reinvesting in their business. What does that mean to you? What are some of the non-negotiables you have when it comes to putting money, time, resources back into that business? The biggest thing to consider here is reinvesting in the business means like you're being proactive to make sure the business is going to be there tomorrow to support you. Like that's the most important thing. If you're not reinvesting at least at that level, then you're going to have a problem because then you're going to be waking up tomorrow and be like, well, what, what am I going to do today to ring the cash register? So that means taking care of customers, uh, taking care of yourself and putting the systems in place to really, you know, continue operating and growing. Some friends of mine have said, oh, I reinvest 20% of my profit back into the business. I reinvest 100% of my profit back into the business. I don't have any hard and fast rules like that. Um, for service-based businesses, that probably takes the the shape of like continually filling the client pipeline, not neglecting that you know prospecting and marketing work. So when you finally get done delivering that project for a client, now all of a sudden you're like, well, where's my next invoice going to come from? For content businesses like mine, maybe that means bringing on additional writers, additional freelancers, getting help with social media marketing stuff like that. Okay, so now people are in business for themselves. It can be really stressful because, as you said earlier, you're wearing all of the hats. So what are some good tips to manage that stress and make sure that you're valuing your own time? I feel like that's the one thing most entrepreneurs kind of slide on. They don't realize how much their time is worth. Sure. Well, I'm still working on this myself. (laughs) But on the stress side, so much of our stress is our response to it. So there's a book called The Upside of Stress that talks about this, how we're conditioned to see stress as a bad thing. But that's really not always the case. Like if we want our muscles to grow, we're going to have to work them. We're going to have to put them under some stress. The book argues that if you can convince yourself to begin to see stress as uh, exciting rather than debilitating. Like, I'm so excited rather than I'm so stressed, I'm so nervous. You'll be better off and you'll be better able to push through. So I'm definitely going to try that during my next speaking gig. Like, oh, instead of like 
you know, cold sweats backstage, like, oh, I'm excited for this. Now, as far as valuing your own time, it's, it's like when the, when the price paid for the work becomes no longer worth it or becomes no longer exciting to you, that's a sign that, okay, I need to raise my rates or it's a sign I don't want to do this project anymore. And that's totally fine too, to say the last thing that you need is, is a second job that you don't look forward to. So definitely a challenge, but you cross that bridge when you come to it. And, and that's the reason my wife and her partner have continued to raise their rates because they're like, eh, take it or leave it. I don't need to do that wedding, but hey, for this price, let's go do it. I love all of these tips. Nick, thank you so much for talking to us today. I think you just sparked a lot of imagination. Thanks for having me. All right, so we just learned a little bit about the art of the side hustle. Now it's time to hear an example of a side hustle that grew into a successful business. Next up on today's Save Space podcast, another segment from our friends at TalkHouse. Now, as we told you in the first episode, TalkHouse is a media outlet where all of the writing and podcasting is done exclusively by musicians, actors, and filmmakers. I'm joined today by TalkHouse's very own Josh Modell. Thank you so much for coming to Save Space. Josh, how you doing? Hey, Kelly. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Okay, so for today, you got to talk to Jason Narducci. He's a fellow dad lives in your shared hometown of Chicago, plays in the legendary indie band Superchunk as a part of Bob Mould's band, and he also has a solo project called Split Single. Jason is very much the definition of a working, touring musician. This guy is busy all the time, and he's so well-respected by his peers. Everybody from Dave Grohl to Eddie Vedder has worked with him, loves him. They, they just love this guy. And he's not only a musician, but he has kids, and he juggles this busy touring schedule with multiple bands, and he runs a small business. So he's on the road. He FaceTimes his kids every night, goes on stage. He's a rock star in front of thousands of people. And then he casually walks off stage and checks his email for his business. Super glamorous average night for Jason <laughs> Jason has found kind of this sweet spot of being the most practical, pragmatic example of somebody who can kind of do it all. He's stable and he's fulfilled, which is not your common stereotype of a rock musician. I'm excited to hear about this conversation. Let's get to it. Yeah, let's roll the tape. So I wanted to talk to you specifically about managing a business because most people know you as a musician who's been in a bunch of bands that they love, Superchunk, Bob Mould's band, all the way back to Verboten. So you have to run a business as a musician, but you also run at least one other kind of business. Is that right? Yeah. Tell me about your businesses. Well, when I was in high school, my friends and I would do paint jobs, even in college during the summer, which I think is not uncommon for kids that age. And um, maybe what was unique, though, is that we would form our own companies. There would be like a group of three or four of us, and we would just go get jobs and then work together instead of working for another company. In my 20s, I got signed to Epic with Verbo and was able to make a living from music for about five years. But I would still pick up little paint jobs. And then by the time I lost my record deal, I was 30 years old, and an actor friend of mine reached out to me and said, hey, do you want to paint this house up in the North Shore of Chicago? And the timing was good for me, and uh, the clients loved us. Wow. And by the end of it, both as, you know, sort of youngish artists, that's when it clicked. And we were like, hey, maybe we should do this. So in 2003, I started my own company and that's what I've been doing for the last 16 years. Among other things. Right. Music. And at one point I started a handyman business with another friend and then he took that over about a year ago. 
So I'm just doing the painting and music right now. You're the active business owner of Inside Outside, right? Inside Outside Painting, yep. And we're really fortunate. We, we do well. You know, one of the nice things about small contracting is that it's the one job I've ever had where if you just do what you say you're going to do, people love you. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I've never had to advertise or anything. It's just word of mouth. And then we, we were fortunate to get work from Northwestern University, and now we're starting to do work at UIC. It's mostly residential, but it's nice to have those larger customers too, larger clients. Have you always been good with money? I think I'm okay. I'm pretty conservative. But what I like to do with my painters, when we do really well, I bonus them out so that there's incentive for everybody. And I want them to feel like they're a part of this because they're very much a part of it. But I'm not. I'm certainly not reckless with it. I have too many responsibilities in life with three kids and a house in Evanston. And, you know, you can't mess that up. Yeah, so. right. <laughs> Do you find yourself having to juggle your music career and running this business? Like, are you out on the road with Superchunk and, you know, there's a painting emergency that you have to deal with, or does that stuff kind of take care of itself? Well, fortunately, both Bob Mold and Superchunk don't tour as much as people maybe think we do. We mm. both acts probably go out at two weeks at a time, maybe three, and it's usually just like four or five dates at a time. And uh, so that makes it very manageable. There have been kind of hilarious moments. I remember one time the Bob Mould Band was in Belgium and uh, the stage manager came and got us from the green room and we were walking down the hallway to the stage and I got a text from one of my painters that they needed to order, they needed more paint. Uh And um, so I asked Bob, I said, hey, can I... Can I make this one phone call? It'll take one minute. And he said, yeah, sure. <laughs> just, <laughs> I'll never get that image out of my mind of, of both Bob and John just kind of leaning against the wall waiting for me to finish this uh, this paint order. <laughs> but, it, you know, the, the painters needed it. You know, it would have been a halt at the job, and that would have been tough for a business. And uh, yeah. I'm, I'm glad that my bandmates were understanding. <laughs> That's awesome. So are you the guy that does, like, the bookkeeping and stuff as well? My wife does the bookkeeping. She oh. she has her own bookkeeping company. Look at that. You're yeah. both managing a business. I was going to ask you if you have to pay her to do your bookkeeping, but maybe that's too personal. Uh, we don't do it that way, okay. no. <laughs> <laughs> the painting company's really easy. The expenses are very clear. It's all kind of online on my credit cards and yeah, it's pretty it's pretty easy to do compared to other companies that she works for. Gotcha. Is it more complicated kind of managing the business of being a musician? There's challenges to both. You know, with any kind of job, like a a painting company, or I guess, you know, if somebody had like a moving company or a cleaning company, there's constant, you know, turnover. It's hard to find good people. Every company will tell you that, um, whether it's a massive corporation or a tiny little company like me. And if you're fortunate to find good people, then you can trust them. And in my situation, I can leave town and you want to keep good people. And sometimes you just have to face the music that you can't do that all the time. People are moving on in their lives. So I I would say the HR element of it is a pretty constant thing. But that's, you know, that's the stress that you take on when you want to be in charge. It's worth it to you, though, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. And I love it. I mean, it's something that I started from nothing and it's become this thing that's, you know, they're really good. We take great pride in our, our work, and so it's nice to walk into people's homes and, and have them be thrilled with our work. And I like that it's a change of scenery all the time. We're not going to the same place every time. I love it. 
I'm really close with the painters and uh, one of them's been with me for 10 years. Another one's been with me for five years and, and a few of them are, you know, three years, four years. I've got one guy that comes in every once in a while that was painting for me 17 years ago. Uh. There are similarities. I think painters are a, a physical type, you know, they realize that it's a lot more cleaning and a lot more carrying and a little bit, it's more physical than people probably imagine. And I, most musicians that I know recognize that too. When I started the painting company in 2001, my partner was an actor and he would bring in actor friends that he knew and I would bring in musician friends that I knew. And it was, you know, the actors were terrible. (laughs) I think actors are used to walking into a, a room and just holding a script and getting to work. Whereas musicians, they're used to pushing amps and and drum kits and carrying cymbals and guitars. And the musicians were just way more in tune with how physical the job of painting a house is. I mean, I definitely feel a kinship to the musicians that I know who, who have to set up everywhere they go. You have to set up in a rehearsal studio. You have to set up in a studio to record. You have to set up at a show. It's the same thing with painting. You're bringing in all the tools. You're setting up the ladders. You're putting the drop cloths down. It's kind of funny how many similarities there are. And it's both, you know, creative work in its way, right? And there's almost always music playing when the when the painters are working. Uh, is there particularly good music to paint to? Is it more aggressive music? Is it chill music? What do you like? Every painter is different. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And now it's all kind of earbuds because everybody wants to hear different things. Oh. But um, my crew chief has a really nice voice and I'll hear him singing from the job site as I'm walking in. <laughs> Pretty funny. Now, I know you've done a bunch of living room shows as split single. Yes. Do you ever go into a living room and think to yourself, like, this needs a paint job. What would I do with this? (laughs) I mean, my own house needs a paint job, Uh, you know. Um, Yeah, I mean, no, not in a critical way. I, we're, we're so fortunate that we have a ton of work. I don't feel like I'm sniffing out. You know? <laughs> okay. like, you know, people live happily without getting fresh paint put up, too. It's completely up to their preference, and I'm not one to judge that. The living room shows are great as a musician because, I mean, I think particularly as an aging musician, I mean, I'm, I'm 48, and it is really nice to play a show at 8 o'clock. Uh-huh. It's really nice for the audience to be able to sit down and... I like being done by 9.15, 9.30, selling some merch and then moving on. I like the intimacy of it, being able to share stories. And because I'm playing by myself, you know, do whatever set list I want. Yeah, I love doing those shows. Those are really fun. And that, if you don't mind me asking, like that works out nicely financially for, for folks too, right? I've spoken to a couple of people that have done those and it, it seems like a decent payday, right, for a, a cool thing. Yeah, when they go well, they're great. I mean, I've I've played shows that are smaller. I remember I did a Wednesday night in Dayton for 10 people. Mm. But there's a place in Richmond that I like to play, and it's usually sold out at 80 people. Huh? There's a living room in, in Baltimore where I'll do two nights, and it's 50 people. For my solo project, Split Single, that is the the best financial scenario, I think, because people... Maybe they like to hear the stories, and then they also tend to buy more merch from me. I, I draw better if it's an early show. If I go play at a club, whether it's with the band version of Split Single or it's just me performing as Jason Narducci, solo artist, it's really tough to get people out to a club just because I'm not 25. <laughs> I'm not famous. <laughs> I mean, I've been doing these East Coast living room tours that have gone really well for the last three years. I'm trying to build on that. I really enjoy it, and it's a great way to connect with people who are interested in what I do. That's awesome. 
such a fascinating artist, Josh. He really is, and the nicest guy in addition to that. If any young person were to say, I don't know how I can possibly eke out a living as a musician, I would point them to Jason. Does he have a lot of help with all the businesses and everything that he's trying to do? You know, weirdly, he doesn't even have a manager. He has a publicist, but she's only active when his solo project is active. Or in other words, he has an album to promote. So really, he's just running all of these various micro-businesses all by himself. Yeah, and we're kind of making him sound like a Superman. (laughs) You know what? He wears a cape. Not all heroes wear capes. Thank you so much for another great segment and interview, Josh. My pleasure, Kelly. See you next time. And to everyone listening, if you enjoyed that interview, check out hundreds of other TalkHouse episodes where musicians interview other musicians, actors, and filmmakers. Thanks again, guys. Okay, after the break, we're going to get some insight on what it takes to start a business. From ideation to creating a plan for investors to building your team. Hope King from Cheddar News sits down with social entrepreneur and CEO of GiveWith, Paul Palazzotto. And later, I'll sit down with artist Patrick Shern. He's the founder of Poetic Kinetics. They create large-scale art installations at festivals like Coachella and cities all over the globe. We'll learn about his humble beginnings and how he scaled his business so he can focus on inspiring the masses with his art. Don't go far. This episode of the Save Space podcast is brought to you by U.S. Bank. For everyone working toward their goal, U.S. Bank is there to help. Whether you're starting a business or dealing with unexpected expenses, U.S. Bank wants to help you grow your financial IQ so you can handle whatever life throws at you. From personal finance to business strategies, access free resources that will help you improve your financial literacy. There's something for everyone. Visit usbank.com slash financial IQ. Okay, let's get back to the safe space. All right, Save Spacers, we've talked a bit about starting and managing businesses on the side. But what if you have a big idea for a business? Where do you even start? For our next segment, we've enlisted the help of our friend Hope King from Cheddar News. She sat down with the founder and CEO of GiveWith, Paul Palazzotto. Paul was the founder and former CEO of Ecomedia, as well as a senior fellow at the University of Southern California's Marshall School of Business. This guy knows his stuff. From finding allies, raising funding, and staffing your enterprise, Paul's years of expertise as a social entrepreneur are invaluable. So let's send it over to Hope and Paul to get some insight on starting a business from scratch. Thanks, Kelly. Another fun episode for the Save Space. This one's for all you entrepreneurs out there. We at Cheddar are teaming up with TuneIn and U.S. Bank to help business owners boost their financial IQs. And here today to help you manage your business is social entrepreneur and CEO of GiveWith, Paul Palazzotto. Paul, welcome to the pod. Hope, thanks for having me. All right, it's a great time to be talking about maybe changes in your life. It's summer, maybe you have some time on the beach to think about these things. If you're starting a business, where should somebody start? Well, I think if you have an idea, you gotta socialize it. I'm looking for three to a dozen different types of experts. One might be an expert in that actual field. One might be a finance person. One might be a marketing person. So I'm looking for a variation of different types of people to validate it. And then it becomes quite practical. When you start building a business, do you think about whether or not you have the funds first or do you build on the idea that has been validated by all of these key people first? I think, you have to, I think you have to validate the idea first because you can't go 
to anyone and ask them to invest their hard-earned money in your idea unless you've really vetted that and really considered that, including your own wife or husband or to go to someone and say, I think we should make this investment or I'd like you to make this investment. I think you've got to have the thing really thought out. So you should have a three-year plan, a five-year plan. How would you help somebody map out their business? I like five-year plans. Now, bear in mind, some investor is going to highly discount, you know, those outer years. And I think investors deserve to know the ambition of their entrepreneur. Like, here's where I want to go, particularly for myself, Hope, as a, a serial social entrepreneur. You know, I'm showing an investor just how bold and ambitious this idea is. And I'm basically saying to them, if this isn't something you're comfortable with, then this is probably not the investment for you. This is great. This is all in your head. You are ready to go. You can't do this alone. How do you start building your team? Well, you start building your team by finding people who experience the same level of joy that you do. The one thing I will tell you is that being a social entrepreneur for me has been a blessing and a curse. The blessing is I find it immensely gratifying. The curse is I can never shut it off. Because once you're made aware of the challenges that the communities face all around the world, your mind never stops thinking about new ways to solve problems and bring funding. So you're looking for people who find that level of joy, that level of purpose. And I think when you do, you can attract amazingly committed people who find the same level of joy you do. And that allows us to attract enormously capable talent, retain them, and it also allows us to attract diversity. I think that has been the strength behind GiveWith's ability to continue to innovate. The problem solving and the thinking comes from the broadest segment of society. And you'll find that if you build businesses around that, you'll succeed. You worked in a traditional workforce before. How did that experience shape the way you lead? Because you were an employee, and now you're an employer and, and a manager. And so you, of course, like parent and child, want to avoid some of those mistakes. Yeah. Well, this is interesting. I'm just going to be honest about it. I graduated from UCLA, and I went to work in corporate America. And I was miserable. I really thought, Hope, I wondered whether my threshold for misery was lower than everyone else's because I'd been there a short time. I'd just graduated. I'm like, I'm miserable. These people have been here for seven, eight, nine, ten years, 20 years. I'm like, there must be more durable. I didn't find joy in it. And I really looked at management. Management through intimidation doesn't work. And if you're not bringing people into the organization that find joy, right, going back to that, then you're going to have a really difficult time building a team that will, will be with you, that will be enduring. Amazing. Let's talk a little bit about money and how somebody should think about financing their business, if they should look at loans, if they should look at help from potential investors or even family and friends. I would say that if you're an entrepreneur and you really believe in what you're doing, be prepared to go all in. Be prepared to go all in. And I think it really depends on what stage of your career you're in. In, in my first business, you know, I was 25 years old, and I didn't have the financial wherewithal to do it all on my own. And, and I did go to family, and I don't regret that. Um, I sold that first business, and through that first business, had enough money to launch the second business and be the lead investor. I invested the most amount of money of, of anyone that was contributing um, capital to that business. Now, in my third business, GiveWith, I happened to be the only investor. 
Now, I'm not saying I will always be, but at this particular time, I'm the only investor. So I think it depends on what stage of your career that you're in. And what I would say is that it takes courage. You have to have conviction in your idea and you're more than likely going to have to rely on friends and family or loans, but be prepared to put skin in the game and have the courage to approach friends and family. They believe in you. They'll be proud of you when you succeed as an entrepreneur and they'll be part of solving that problem and watching you excel as an entrepreneur. All right, Paul, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Paul Palazzotto, for joining us here on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Hope, and thank you, Paul. I don't know about you, but it's so inspiring to hear someone who is still so obviously passionate about business talking about how they get things done. Great stuff. Thanks again, guys. Okay, now we're going to move along from big ideas to big dreams. My next guest has a vision to make the world a more beautiful place through large-scale art installations. Artist Patrick Schoen is the president and creative director of Poetic Kinetics. They are the team of creators behind some incredible moving sculptures, figuratively and literally. You may have seen their work earlier this year at Coachella. The infamous Coachella astronaut is one of their many creations. From Beijing to Berlin, Poetic Kinetics travels the globe, inspiring onlookers with their unique brand of art. However, these masterpieces don't just appear out of thin air. It takes dedication and the right team to run such a unique company. Joining me from Los Angeles, California, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to welcome Patrick Schoen to The Safe Space. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. Poetic Kinetics is so interesting. I've been looking at all of your art installations online. Tell me about your journey as an artist and how you got started in this business. My family's very creative. My mom was a, a very prolific artist and always raised sort of knowing that art was something you just did. It was one of the staples of life. Everything is a creative decision, pretty much. And so I was always making things, doing things. And uh, what was particularly special about it was that because it was a process, it wasn't about the end result. And there was a separation between you as a person and the work you were doing. So I don't have a lot of the sort of hangups that oftentimes plague artists where the quality of the work somehow tied to their self-image. Mm -hmm. And that was really, really you know, beneficial for me. And it allowed me to sort of think on a different scale and kind of operate differently. And then I was doing art at all kinds of different levels and ended up doing some artwork for Burning Man, large-scale sculptural art. And uh, a few years later, somebody had seen that and they called me out of the blue. I was working on a film doing uh, visual effects. And they called me and said, hey, we've got this project involving a giant puppet show with a 26-foot-tall terracotta warrior and a 16-foot-tall girl puppeted from a rig that's moved around with heavy equipment. We're looking for somebody to do it. And so I jumped off the film and replaced myself and then went off. And my partner and I did this puppet show in China. We were there for six months and you know hired the Beijing Contemporary Dance Company. And, and uh, in the process, we had to start a company. That was the first time I sort of went into business formally. I'd done some other stuff where I'd made art for people and, and different things, but that was sort of the reason to start a business. And uh, fortunately, my business partner was pretty astute and had the right kind of brain for managing a lot of the nitty gritty of it. But uh, that got us going. That was the first foray into the company. Now my company, Poetic Kinetics, has been in business for a decade. Wow. 
Okay, so, you know, making business out of art, you hear a lot of artists, and they're really great at what they do. But then when they try to actually make it into a business, they run into a lot of hurdles. Sometimes that's just a different way of thinking that they're not well-versed in. So what are some of the challenges that you guys ran into when you started Poetic Kinetics that you wish you would have been better prepared for? I've heard the same stories, you know, the, the creative prima donna type. And yeah. fortunately, I don't think that's me, but I was completely unaware of a lot of the challenges, you know, and then starting a business in China, it's a U.S. business, but the realities of doing business in China were pretty incredible. Like we were going to the bank every morning and taking out all the cash we could out of all of our possible accounts because of the limits and everything. Moving money across borders was really challenging. Fortunately, we'd set it up with the agency that we were dealing with that they had to do all the actual hiring and firing of people. But otherwise, that would have been a real challenge. And then we ended up getting held hostage, trying to leave a facility to go to the performance site. And it called for a suitcase full of cash. And that was something I never would have predicted uh, either, you know, but on a sort of on a realistic level, there's so much complexity to running a business that I wouldn't have considered you know, taxes and HR kind of issues and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Insurance, legal, all that stuff. It's just something you don't really anticipate. No, a lot of those things I don't think anybody could anticipate at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so you really do, it's out of the box, these large, beautiful installations. Fair to say that you don't run a traditional business. That's easy to see. But what were some of the business challenges that you run into other businesses might not consider? I mean, when we're thinking about, uh, you know, taking your art and making this into something where, as you said, you're traveling to China to put in these installations. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things you think people really need to be aware might be coming at them down the road? Working at the scale that I do, we were going through a period of time where we were doing one or two big projects a year. The budgets were so high that if something happened and went wrong, you know, that's something you really should consider is, you know, trying to set it up so you have a buffer and some padding to be flexible and, and nimble as you're moving along. I think that's sort of a major one. The kind of people you hire, I think, is really an important thing, especially as a creative. You know, I don't have the right brain to do spreadsheets and get into the minutiae of some of the stuff that's necessary, but you know, it really matters that you're getting good quotes on materials and tracking your money and seeing where your estimates are and quoting effectively and all of that. Absolutely. I mean, you touched on it right there that you really are hiring out the people that you know you need when you have something that you're not great at. You find somebody who is great at that. How did you build out your team? How did you go about finding the right people to make sure that you had a solid team in place? Initially, I was hiring friends just either because I liked them and they were skilled or they were close by. It was sort of a homegrown thing where I was going to Burning Man quite a bit. And it was more of like, let's just go on a different kind of adventure. More importantly, later, I've been taking a more focused approach and hiring people that I didn't know necessarily, but have a different kind of awareness, different kind of skill sets that, that are more business-based. Because the business qualities, the ability to sort of understand how structures work and what bids should look like and how to sort of strategically maneuver in that environment has been really helpful. So the best decision I ever made was to hire an assistant and, you know, be able to take my time and focus it on where I was most effective. I think that was leading into my next question beautifully because art is such a personal expression and we see these beautiful artwork installations that you're doing. So 
having those people around you and having a solid team like that, having an assistant that can help you, that really allows you to focus on what you do best and being an artist and maybe leaving some of those other business strategies up to other people on the team. Yeah, I'm very collaborative in general anyway, but I found that by creating a community around the art and infusing a sense of family, a sense of pride for everybody in the art. So, you know, I'm open to ideas and I like it when people are share ideas and share skill sets and stuff so that we can all make a better product ultimately. And then the people are invested in a personal way and an emotional way. And I think that improves the quality as well. It infuses a sense of loyalty and, a, you know, mutual trust, mutual loyalty go in both directions. And it's been really positive for me. Owning a business is hard work, no matter what your business is. So what are some of the ways that you deal with the stress of being a business owner? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's a tough one. I've always been a hard worker, and so I don't feel like work has a bad connotation. But the stresses for me are when I'm worried about all the people that I'm working with, you know, materials coming on time or, or things coming together the way we'd hoped for. I really try to be communicative and share with my team the situation and, and everybody's sort of aware so that it's not just me alone being stressed. <laughs> I like that. Everybody can be a little yeah. stressed instead of one person having all the stress. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly not a dictatorship. I like it. Okay, so for business owners of any size, community can be a huge part of what can make them successful. So how have you really cultivated your own business community and how has that shaped and influenced the work that you're doing? Well, I think there's the inside the company community, which is you know something I've been speaking to. But then the nature of my work has drawn a large sort of social media presence. One of the big pieces we did initially in Pershing Square generated a lot of viral interest called Liquid Shard. Mm-hmm. That was a complete surprise to me. I'm not sort of involved in the social media world, but it's very clear to me that it's a key component. And so some of my artwork, the astronaut we did at Coachella, had a, a very sort of interactive capture your face and put it into the visor of the astronaut kind of component. And I realized that using that kind of interactivity and using the social media as an artistic tool was totally a righteous path. I have an amazing team that is looking at that side of things and, and really projecting forward into making a community large. So we have a bunch of followers and a lot of responses to every post we make, and it's really pretty rewarding. Well, it's pretty clear that Poetic Kinetics has really blown up. You guys started off like a passion project. And now I know you mentioned you're traveling all over the world, putting in these beautiful art installations. So I guess the question is, where do you want to go next? What's your vision for the future of your company? Well, I mean, I love what I'm doing. Somebody asked me what I'm going to do when I retire, and I just don't see that happening. But I'm very interested in in seeing what I can do to use my artwork to affect causes that that I care about you know, global warming or something like that. That's always sort of in the back of my mind. But otherwise, I just really, I really am enjoying the people I'm working with. I'm really enjoying the the client interactions that I've been having. And it's really wonderful to be able to travel as much as I do and install in all these weird places. It's really very, very rewarding. Okay, last question. As somebody who has built this thing from very little business experience, what's the one piece of advice that you would give to all aspiring business owners who are considering taking that leap? Hire the smartest people that you can find and ones that have counter skills to yours so that you know you have that, that skill set available and then listen to them. It's so easy to sort of see the world from your perspective and I've learned over and over and over again that other perspectives are oftentimes far superior. 
Thank you so much. Patrick Shern, we appreciate your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. This is wonderful. Thank you. Amazing. You just heard from Patrick Shern, President and Creative Director of Poetic Kinetics. Thanks again. Okay, we're going to take a short break. And when we return, we'll sit down with Money Girl Laura Adams for some actionable tips for our listeners around managing your business. More to come. U.S. Bank knows that some of these conversations can be tricky ones, which is why they've created an entire library of financial tips, tricks, and information for multiple financial situations. From personal finance to business strategies, access free resources that will help improve your financial literacy. Visit usbank.com slash financial IQ for more information. So we've covered a lot of ground so far in this episode. From side hustles to small businesses, from startups to big dreamers. One of the things I love so much about making this podcast is just the sheer difference in opinions and perspectives. Speaking of expert perspectives, my next guest is truly a fountain of knowledge when it comes to all things finance related. If you tuned into the last episode, you'll remember Laura Adams, best-selling author, speaker, financial literacy advocate, and of course, the host of the Money Girl podcast. Thanks for coming back to join us again. My pleasure. You know, what are some of the biggest misconceptions that people have when it comes to owning their own business? I feel like it's this big, huge idea. And then when you actually try to make it happen, it's so scary. It is a big step. My recommendation is try not to make it such a big step. Maybe you do something on the side for a little while. But, you know, in terms of what is a big misconception that people have about it. I think taxes is one. They forget that they're going to owe more taxes as a self-employed person. So missing tax deductions, not saving enough for self-employment taxes, just not understanding the whole tax game. It's different when you're self-employed and you have self-employed income. So, you know, that's one of the things you've just got to realize when you own your business, you're going to have to be responsible for those taxes. You're exactly right. So that's something that you need to know going in on the front end. Finding the money to really kind of grow that business or turn it into the next step. It might have been a side hustle, as you said at the beginning, and and now you're really ready to make it a business. How do you go in the right direction when we're talking about finding that financial independence and really putting it into that business? And everybody's a little different here. Some people say, you know, I'm going to bootstrap. I want to just kind of earn as I go and and expand as I go. Other people say, no, I'm going big time and I'm going to get financing and, and, you know, really try to get investors involved. So it really depends on your vision for the business. Personally, I've always been a bootstrapper. Mm-hmm. I have always enjoyed being small, being a solopreneur. My husband and I have had different businesses over the decades, and right now I'm, I'm kind of a solopreneur, and I enjoy that, you know. So I would say if you have an idea, try it on the side. Test it out. This is what you can do is just look at different ideas before you spend a bunch of money. Think about how you can test it. Literally test the idea. Are you thinking about starting a new business? Well, could you find a potential client to work with as a pilot that maybe you charge them less and just see how it goes, you know, looking at different services? So building up that income slowly before you leave your day job can also make it a lot less stressful, right? Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people that are working full-time that are doing their business on the side and they hope to build it up. Some people say, I like both. I like the variety. Um, But that's really one way that I think most people can relate to. If if you just do it on the side for a little while, then you make the leap when you feel like you've eventually got the income to do it. 
I love that idea. I think so many people are into the idea of all or nothing. I'm going to leave my full-time job and try to make this business work instead of, as you said, get the business off the ground and running before you make that big leap of faith. Yeah, it's scary if you don't have a little kind of a backup, a plan B, if you will. Absolutely. Give us some tips if you are starting that business and you're at home. What's something that you would really implore people to do day to day? Yeah. So set up physical boundaries. If you've got kids at home, you you know, they've got to know if you're in this room working, you are at work. You are not to be disturbed unless the house is burning down. You know, if you can set some boundaries there, it really is going to help you. We're setting those boundaries with ourselves, but we have to set those expectations also with family, friends. You know, you have to train people how to treat you, right? So if they are interrupting your day and you are not getting anything done, they're going to just keep doing it unless you put up the barriers and say, hey, you know what, I'll call you back when I eat lunch at noon or the end of the day. Protecting that time, that's really one of our most valuable assets. And if you are not guarding it, you're not going to be as productive as you could. Oh, I love that. That is so good. Okay. Hiring the right people. Let's go there. You've started this business and now it's starting to grow and you're getting to that break point where you're thinking, I really need some help. How do you go about hiring the right person? Yeah, I've done so much hiring and firing in my career. And I will tell you, you want to hire slow and fire fast. It's never a good thing to fire anybody. It's horrible. Right. But we will eventually hire the wrong people. You know, it's something that you have to realize that when you realize you don't have a good hire, you've got to make a change. It's best for everybody to move that quickly. But one tip here is to think about people with different skill sets. We tend to like people who are like us, that are similar to the skills and the personality that we have. And in most cases in the business world, you need people that are very different from you to complement your skills and abilities. And so it's not our nature to do that. So go outside of that kind of, you know, innate desire to go, oh, I like that person. They're they're similar to me, so I'm going to bring them in. In a lot of cases, that's not what you need. Um, so remember that you need to gravitate toward people who are not similar to you to grow your business. That's a hard, hard decision to make. I almost feel like you might need someone else to help you on that decision-making process because if there's somebody that you trust that's close by that's a friend or a spouse or you know a partner that you can say, I think I'm going to hire this person. They know you better probably than you know yourself and what you truly need. Yeah, totally. And I think, too, letting people come in temporarily, say, you know, we're going to give it a trial run, 90 days, six months. Let's do this and see how it goes. Maybe it's not the right fit. And if you can set that expectation that, you know, we're going to give this a shot and here are the things that I'm expecting from you within this kind of temporary period. And if it works out, fantastic. You'll be full time or, or, you know, whatever the agreement is. But, you know, not kind of banking on it because it doesn't always work out, right? Right. Absolutely. Balance. Let's try to go there. I mean, this is such a tricky word and I feel like it triggers a lot of people. You're trying to do that work-life balance. And if you're starting your own business, it's so easy to get sucked into becoming a workaholic. How do you maintain that balance in your life? So it really does come down to outsourcing both personally and professionally. So what can you do that truly is draining you? You know, if you don't like doing something in your business, let's say the accounting and the bookkeeping is just weighing you down, 
outsource it. There are so many people out there that can do it better than you, probably even cheaper than you when you look at it on an hourly basis on what your time is worth. So outsourcing frees up time. It's going to get the things done that drain your energy and that are just not the highest and best use of you. Your skills are valuable. So, Mm -hmm. you know, maintain those for what you want to do and then use that free time for family, for fitness, working in your community, spirituality, whatever it is that really does fire you up and recharge you. Because if you're working 24 hours a day and you are trying to do everything, you're going to burn out eventually. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's not going to be good for your relationships. Ugh, you are so right there. Now, when you're talking about this outsourcing, you mentioned something that I think was so key, and I want to go back to it. Your time, figure out what your hours are worth. Do you encourage people to actually sit down and do a mathematical equation to say, hey, every minute of my day is worth this amount of money? Or is it just an overarching theme that your time is money? Yeah, no, if you do have a an income that you can base that time on, that's terrific. If you're just starting out, you may think, well, I'm not making much, so my time isn't worth much. But the reality is your potential with that time is worth a lot. So you do have to value it. I mean, you've got to give yourself a minimum valuation. And yes, if you can hire somebody to do that for less than what it would cost mm-hmm. you, it is definitely worthwhile. So again, there are little ways that you can outsource your life and uh, free up time so that you are recharged and you're making the best use of your time. Everybody defines success differently. And especially if you're starting a new business, you might have a benchmark in your head. You're thinking, if I can make this much money a year, then I'm a success. How do you really manage those expectations, especially starting out of the gate? It's tough because I love having role models. People need role models for their business and, and you know other things that they want to accomplish in life. But you also want to be careful that you're not judging yourself against those role models the success they have does not necessarily need to equal your success. You know, how can you think about your authentic self? It all comes down to being authentic, having balance, having freedom. I mean, those are the things for me that personally define success. So, you know, money is certainly a part of it, but also freedom and flexibility, being able to be myself in the work that I do that is how I, I really define success. So you've got to make that definition for yourself. Don't put too much pressure on yourself in the beginning. Get those role models, but don't feel crushed if you're not making what they're making or accomplishing what they make right out of the gate. Absolutely. I'm a small business owner myself. I've got to say, one of the things that I was very cognizant of when I was starting my business, how do I start this business How do I pour my time and energy into it? But how do I protect my personal assets? I don't want my business to fail and have the bank come and take my house. So what are some of the ways that people really need to educate themselves once they have this side hustle that's really turning into a growing business? What do they need to look at? How do you protect your personal assets and keep them separate from your business? This is really important because you've got to set up an entity for your business. And in most cases, you don't need to do it immediately. I will say, let's let's say after $10,000, if you've made $10,000 in a year, that's a good point to say, okay, I've got some income here that I need to protect. Maybe it means setting up an LLC. 
Maybe it means some kind of partnership, just depending on what you're doing. You need some help here. So I would say talk to an attorney, talk to somebody that can help you. There are certainly templates that you can use to set this up. But if you've got any complexity going on with your business, any special liabilities there, definitely get some help. But yeah, you do want to separate everything going on with the business from personal. That applies to your accounts, bank accounts, Mm -hmm. credit cards, right? Try to separate as much as you can so that you are seeing those business expenses separately and that you can use those for valid tax deductions. It all comes back to taxes, which is how we started. It's full circle. Friends, if you're out there and you're thinking about starting a business, I have to tell you, you need to listen to more of Laura because she has some great tips. You can find the Money Girl podcast on TuneIn and other places where podcasts are held. Thank you so much for coming in. Oh, my pleasure. We learned so much in this episode of The Safe Space. As you can tell, there's a lot to consider when starting and managing a business. However, I hope these conversations have helped raise your financial IQ. It can be a lot of work, but with the right idea and dedication, you can reach your goals no matter what stage of life you're in. I want to thank all of our incredible guests and contributors for taking the time to sit down with us today and offer their insight and expertise. A big thanks to Nick Loper from Side Hustle Nation. You can get more advice from Nick at SideHustleNation.com. And be sure to check out his podcast, The Side Hustle Show, available right here on TuneIn and wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again to Jason Narducci and TalkHouse host Josh Modell. A big thanks to Paul Palazzotto and Cheddar News anchor Hope King. Thanks to Patrick Shearn. You can learn more about his work at PoeticKinetics.com. And finally, bringing us some actionable tips, I want to thank our guest, Laura Adams. Make sure that you check out the Money Girl podcast for even more insightful commentary on financial literacy across a myriad of topics. Don't worry if you didn't have a pen to jot all of that down. You can check out the description of this episode for links to learn about all of our guests, as well as financial literacy resources. And of course, we want to thank U.S. Bank for making all of this possible. Remember, you can always head to usbank.com slash financial IQ for any existing money management questions you may have. No matter how big or small your concerns, their rich source of education materials can help make sense of even the most complex issues. The Save Space is hosted by me, Kelly Sutton, produced at TuneIn Studios by Charles Raggio and Jenner Pasqua, sound engineered and edited by Kevin Corrigian, and additional support from Joyce Reiser, Stratton Easter, and Andrew Broadhead. Please make sure you subscribe so that you get alerted to all of our future episodes when they drop, and don't forget to like, comment, and share with your friends and family. On the next episode of The Save Space, we'll be tackling one of the biggest financial decisions you can make in your life, buying a home. I am so excited about this one. You're definitely not going to want to miss it. 